1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Kathy McClive, Associate Professor of History at Florida State University, to talk about her new book, a critical edition uh, titled The Art of Childbirth, which is a bilingual critical edition of Marie Baudoin, Baudoin's 17th century epistolary treatise on childbirth, which she edited and translated for The Other Voice in Early Modern Europe, the Toronto series, and it is out with Eater Press of Toronto this year, 2022. Hi, Kathy. How are you?
1: Hi, Yana. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Lovely to meet you.
0: Lovely to meet you. Um, first of all, how did I do with her name?
1: Marie... Marie Baudouin. It, yeah, you did fine.
0: Okay. Yeah, wonderful. Good. My French is, well, serviceable, but no one would ever call it elegant and no one has ever mistakenly thought I was French. You, there were, No no one was like... Mm-tch. Yeah, anyway. All right. So how are you doing? How's Florida?
1: Florida is bracing itself for the second hurricane um, in a matter of weeks. So um, I think... We're okay in North Florida, but um yeah, it's not looking good in general, unfortunately,
0: yeah, you did your accent, I'm just making a guess you don't hail from Florida, do you No, I'm British, no
1: <laughs> no <laughs> we moved here from Durham University um an offer we couldn't kind of couldn't turn down, so yeah, it's um been a pretty big shift. We've been here five years now, but I don't think I'll ever sound like a Floridian. I
0: doubt that too. I, as a Michigander, I don't think I'll ever sound like a Floridian. I'm okay with that. Uh, that's fine. Yeah. Welcome to America. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> and our appalling weather, of uh, one sort or another. All right. So let's talk about this wonderful treatise. Um, it's fantastic. It's fascinating. It's a beautiful translation. We'll talk some more about that. Um, it's a little bit gruesome in a couple places. Uh, or at least you know just maybe honest I think is it Um, and so I think having looked at your CV I think this makes perfect sense but I would like you to explain to our listeners how a midwifery treatise fits into your academic and intellectual life.
1: Yeah sure so it's actually a long story with this particular treatise so very long time ago longer than I would kind of care to elaborate on too much. When I was doing my PhD, um, a friend who was a couple of years ahead of me came with me to the archives in Paris, and she kind of pushed, we were in the Bibliothèque Richelieu, which is the manuscript library, and she kind of pushed um, the catalogue at me and said, you might want to look at, at this. And I was working on menstruation at the time, and I was interested in kind of understanding how early modern people Um, kind of got to grips with menstruation, what it was, what was going on inside the body when they couldn't kind of see inside, what the connection with pregnancy was. So she thought, childbirth treaties, let's show this to Cathy. And I remember reading it and thinking, this is fascinating, but there is nothing on menstruation in here. This is no good for the PhD. So I kind of put a pin um, in it with a view to coming back to it much later. So the pregnancy kind of childbirth connection is there. I'm interested in... um, people's understandings and knowledge about bodies, particularly reproductive bodies, who gets access to that knowledge, who can kind of claim that knowledge, whose knowledge is considered authoritative and legitimate, and then also how that's gendered. So that kind of relationship between medical practitioners and their patients. Um, And that's really where this treatise comes in. And there's so few writings that survive by early modern um, women, female midwives, particularly, from the 17th century, and I thought, you know, we need, we need a critical edition of this. And I wanted it to be bilingual so that French st- lit students as well as, um, you know, non-French speakers can have access to it.
0: Right, because um, archival material that sits in, a, in Paris isn't easily accessible for most people.
1: no. No, it's not. And they have digitized. um, They are getting better at digitizing things and they've digitized a lot of the volumes that this that this um, treatise is in. But um, to my knowledge at the moment, not this specific volume yet. So unless you go and sit in this archive, you have no, you don't even know it exists. Right. Well, and that's the thing is even if it were digitized who would
0: know it's there?
1: Exactly. And the handwriting (laughs) is not I mean, it's not too bad for 17th century French handwriting, but it's not great either. The spelling's all over the place. So,
0: (laughs) (laughs) no, I mean, the hand's actually quite nice, right? Um, And you will see this, listeners, if you check out the book. You can there are pages of uh, there there are images of these pages, and it's it's you can read it, but the spelling is all over the place, which is how it is. Um, You know, I'm reading I'm reading a treatise right now, and there's a woman's name, and it's spelled three different times three different ways on the same page. So it's, it's just maddening. And you also just finding these things, you know, that you're a specialist. You are good at what you do. This isn't just something anyone could find, could just stumble across. So it's that in itself, just having it out in the world and easily accessible is its own gift. And then translating it into English and then putting this beautiful critical apparatus around it so we can understand it makes it a very good, excellent resource all the way around and for a lot of fields. Okay, so here's my first question. Who is this woman? Who is uh, Madame Baudoin?
1: that's a really good question. And I think she's fascinating and intriguing. And I was able to find out certain things about her and I wish I could know more, but as is always the case, particularly when we're looking at um, women in the early modern period, the sources are fragmented. So she was born around 1625 in Paris. We know that. She was born into an artisanal family. So fairly, um, you know, kind of lower, not one of the big artisanal families. Um, so I don't think they were necessarily very well off. Um, she got married at 16 and she married somebody of a higher status, somebody who had um, the right to call himself a bourgeois. And he was actually a wine broker. So she kind of married up. Um, She seems to have had some education because she signed her marriage contract, whereas her older sister didn't sign hers. So there's quite um, a demarcation there, although her mother could sign. Um, We usually take signing as a a sign of an indication of of some form of literacy, although of course it doesn't necessarily mean people could read or write any more than their signature, but it's kind of um, what early modernists tend to go on. So Then she trained at um, the Hotel Dieu which was one of the big hospitals in Paris and that was actually a very elite midwifery training course. So there's this interesting kind of disjunct between her kind of fairly modest origins. She marries this um, bourgeois wine broker and then she gets into this elite training school and she does that um, at 16. She's quite young really when she gets married for the 17th century. And she works with Madame Le Vachet, who is a very well-known kind of uh, well and well-thought-of midwife there. And then in 1651, she moves to Clermont-Ferrand, which is a provincial town um, south and slightly west of Paris in the region of Auvergne. And she takes up the position there as midwife at the Hotel Dieu, the hospital there. And... She then becomes this really powerful kind of mover in this Clermont-Ferrand society. She's friends with the political elite, the religious elite. It's um, a Jansenist enclave, um, which is a form of Catholicism that was more rigorous and more austere and followed Augustinian ideology. And so she really, through that religious um, network which is kind of connected into the financial and the political elite in that city, she meets um, Vallon, the physician whom she writes the treatise in a letter to, and they appear to have a decades-long um, correspondence that we have some fragments of, and she becomes the governor and the head midwife of this hospital. So she manoeuvres herself into this very powerful man- managerial kind of administrative role as well and we know so little about women in those kinds of roles that she's fascinating from all sorts of angles Um, and when she dies she leaves a considerable for the time legacy to the hospital with strings attached which is really interesting to me because it tells me that she you know was very clever in in planning And she wanted the hospital to be run in a certain way after a death, and she tied this legacy to that. Otherwise, it was going to go to a hospital in Lyon. So I think in in lots of ways, she's this... She seems kind of... She doesn't align with what we think we know or we've assumed we know um, about gendered norms, about women's work, about women's in kind of managerial roles, political roles, about... um, women midwives and so I think she's just fascinating
0: she um and she has so many lives right I mean she's a midwife which is a thing in of of itself right that is a quite that is a position for which you have to train which is a big deal and then she's also the administrator of this massive organization um an intellectual of sorts right and a a politician because you have to be in this role so she becomes this woman who is not even petite bourgeoisie at best right is then this very important woman and it really does it, she she just single-handedly questions all these things like really throws the wrenches into everything we know yeah she does yeah. Uh, so I think I'm um, just there are th- like th- a couple different things I want to hit on. Like, uh, but first, just before we do any more, what did let's talk about her role as midwife? What what did she do as a midwife, and what kind of training did she have? And what was her, you know, before she before she became the the mistress of the hotel? Dieu, what was her life like? Like, what are, what are they doing?
1: So that's a really good um, question, and it's something that we can get at parts of through her treaties and some of the remaining archives about the Hotel Dieu in Paris, but unfortunately they're fragmented and there was a big fire in the 19th century. So a lot of the originals are destroyed, including in really frustratingly um, the materials about the apprentice midwives. So what we have is kind of based on studies that were done before that fire. So the training was really hands-on. It was for a couple of months Um, at the Hotel Dieu, because there were so many births there. That was really the hospital that a lot of the the poor women in Paris would go to um, towards the end of their pregnancy and give birth. So they're dealing with um, a really high number of deliveries, so lots of practical experience. They would work with the head midwife, um, a small number of them at time, and attend the deliveries. We know that she attended dissections because we she talks about how Madame Vacher actually dissected um, the corpses of, of pregnant women who died in childbirth at the hospital. And we know that it was common practice for hospital physicians and surgeons to have access to unclaimed bodies and perform those kinds of dissections. But we assumed that that wasn't really something that midwives themselves were doing and were involved in. And we know that um, in the mid 17th century Madame Lavache was doing that so she has anatomical training as well so she would have seen a range of different labors, kind of straightforward easy labors to very very complicated labors um, and probably a significant amount of loss as well labors that you know they couldn't resolve that needed required difficult manual um, interventions, sometimes surgical interventions and some of them would have ended in, in loss.
0: Of loss of the child and loss of the mother That's as well. Right? Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Um so this is not an easy position. This is not this is not just a walk in the park job. You're not a milkmaid here. This is a hard a high level of training. Um yeah, and, and very um, and so essential. and it's so essential, I think that we tend to as moderns, I think we tend to overlook it. And I, know, I think that our modern consumption of midwifery is that it's kind of a hobby thing or I don't know that it's not real medicine, but it's absolutely medical training, right.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, that's very much a kind of 19th century professionalization of medicine Mm -hmm. narrative. And it's to do with what we've assumed the gendered dynamic was like. And um, this narrative that held for a long time about the replacement of female midwives with kind of their male counterpart surgeons and physicians and kind of the obstetrician taking over um, the birth team, but which we now know was a lot more complicated for the 17th and 18th centuries um, than we thought. But yeah, it, it was hard work i mean she does talk about that in her in her treatise she talks about the f- the physical labor and when she's describing some of the maneuvers the manual manipulations that she would need to do in difficult um, births you know she talks about you might need to take a rest and just stop for a few minutes because this is hard she talks about the emotional labor and how difficult that can be and how important it is for the midwife to kind of try and set aside her own emotions and really concentrate on what she 's doing, so I think, yeah, it was a very task taxing job on all sorts of levels, but yeah, absolutely so essential because it's you know it 's crucial' it 's life and death for these women and their babies
0: yeah um, it's, i mean i 'm shaking my head as I always do about how much of what we think we know about the seventeenth century is actually just what we were told by the 19th century. And, it, and it's, it's just, it's so maddening as an historian. Um, but you know that, and that is a rant better. That you don't need, this interview does not need my rant about the 19th century. Um, so the first thing, that kind of first of VAC I want to discuss here is the correspondence and of the letters um, and what that means. So what's her relationship? Let's talk about this relationship between um, our midwife and Dr. Vallon. Uh, What what can we know about it? What do we know about it?
1: Okay. So we have three letters that survive. We have the treatise, which is in the form of a letter itself. It's just a longer letter. And then we have two other letters, one which looks like a cover letter that she sent a little bit in advance, kind of telling him to expect. And then we have a later letter probably within six months and eight to a year where she's asking him for help because she needs um lodging she's separated by property from a husband she's been staying with some friends and she needs help and she's asking him to put in a word for her with a benedictine community in paris that she knows is sympathetic to jansenists And that's all we have. So it's fragments. And the letters that we have, we have them because this physician Valon kept them in this huge mess of a collection that he has of his um, paperwork. And it's his his medical paperwork. um, It's his paperwork with his patrons. So he was physician to the Marquise de Sable. And then he moved into the royal household. And he worked with the, um, the Guise family and he actually lodged at the Luxembourg Palace in the um, Luxembourg Gardens in Paris. So he has 15 volumes of of stuff and we have there's some poetry in there, there are political treaties, um, some of it's organised, some of it's not. It's kind of a, a mess and it's not clear did they write more regularly to each other and it just it didn't survive or it wasn't the kind of thing that he was wanting to put in his collection. You know, the question is why did he keep those two letters plus the treaties and nothing else? It seems from indications in the letters that the correspondence or the communication goes beyond those fragments because it looks like they've had a prior conversation about this Benedictine community and he's aware of the situation that she's in um, and there are sort of references backwards and forwards to how she feels about the treaties and what he's going to do about it and she talks in the treaties about a promise that she made to him in Paris a long time before and she's embarrassed it's taken her so long to actually write the treaties and we can tell from peripheral correspondence so correspondence between Vallon and um, the Pascal Perrier family in Clément who are very um, good friends with um, the midwife. She goes to their salon and they're the ones who house her initially when she's separated by property from a husband. So there are some um, mentions of her in there. She's mentioned in correspondence between that family and um, Arno, who was one of the confessors who established the port. Royal convent, the kind of Jansenist headquarters in Paris when she gets into trouble in um, in Clermont-Ferrand with a, a non-Jansenist priest who's kind of questioning her orthodoxy because Jansenism is persecuted by the crown at this point. So there are lots of kind of snippets that we can put together that tell us that there is a long-standing emotional, religious and medical connection between the two but we only have fragmented kind of direct evidence, which is as ever the, the way that we need to kind of pass out quite carefully.
0: Yeah, the, the frustrating uh, ellipses in this conver- in this conversation, you know, is ongoing. But what does that tell us? Like, why are they talking? What are they to each other? What's her, what is he getting from her? Why
1: is she talking to him? That's a really good question. That's a really good question. So I think... They start out, I think when they first meet, they're on a similar level. So she's not been that long um, in Clermont-Ferrand. It looks like when he was traveling from Montpellier, where he trained, to Paris to look for work, he stayed with the Pascal Perrier family. In Clermont-Ferrand, they had um, Jansenist connections in common. He doesn't yet have a permanent position there. He couldn't find work after he graduated with his medical degree. And I think that he was very respectful of her knowledge as a midwife, of her capabilities and her skills. I think she had a good reputation already when she was working in Paris after she finished her training, and that seems to be clear with the hiring um, in Clermont-Ferrand. And presumably, you know, her network talked about um, her skills. It looks like she delivered Gilbert um, Pascal's last two children, so of the Pascal Perrier family so I think that there was a a kind of meeting of minds there then of course he moves to Paris and he becomes you know much more elite um and his network expands and he really gets in with um you know Madame de Sable's network of you know these aristocratic Jansenist women um and he has lots of very high-ranking clients and he's working in lots of the religious communities and lots of the aristocratic families. So arguably you might say, well, once he reaches that point, why is he still interested in communicating with this kind of provincial midwife? Why does he keep the treaties that she sends him? So was that, um, you know, a kind of off the cuff request, he said, why don't you write a treatise and I'll publish it for you at some point earlier? And then, of course, she writes it in 1671. We don't know exactly when that earlier conversation took place. And he doesn't publish it, but he does keep it. So he obviously did value her knowledge, um, her experience, and, and the treaties and that connection enough to keep it. And I think the fact that she asked him personally for help in this letter, which was probably from 1672, really does indicate that there was a personal connection there as well. So um, I mean, I think you're right. It is, it is strange because we're so attuned to the hierarchy of kind of gendered conflicts and conflictual dynamics between male medical practitioners and female medical practitioners. And this really seems to be a collaboration, at least intellectually and kind of, um, you know, through their kind of common Jansenism.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, there's also, I mean, he's he's removed from her geographically. There's no, um, he's clearly getting something. There's some benefit there is this back and forth, right? This is a mutually beneficial communication, um, which, uh, as you know, like, as we've noted already, um, just brings into question a lot of what we know. Um, And it brings up the idea about like the sociability of knowledge as opposed to the hierarchy of knowledge Um, and questions about how knowledge was produced, curated and um, disseminated in the early modern era. And I'm wondering if you would like to comment on that maybe with this relationship as a a demonstration.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it absolutely does bring up the sociability of knowledge. And there's a lot of really exciting... um, you know, recent work in the last five to ten years about that, that I find really helpful thinking through what's going on here. And I think that this treatise does really map quite closely into that. What we tend to find with the sociability of knowledge that we know that it's produced in households, so, you know, wives working with husbands, children working with fathers, it's that kind of familial model. And we know that happened in surgical households, households of physicians as well as scientists um, and other other healing families we know that knowledge was produced in kind of religious communities um, and we know that it was disseminated in salons particularly in the 17th century and then through letters with the republic of letters so the kind of european wide network of of correspondence i don't think that we can say that midwife boudoir was really part of that i don't know that she wrote to anybody else other than sending the treaties to, to Vallon but I think she's kind of on the edges of that and I think that Vallon is more central certainly in this um, kind of salon sociability of knowledge Mar- the Marquise de Sable, Sable has a very um, well-attended salon um, Gilbert Pascal is the sister of the philosopher Blaise Pascal, who attends, she has a salon at their castle just outside clermont ferrand Um and they also attend the Marquise de Sablé salon in Paris. So she's on the edges of that. We know that Baudoin attended the Bienessie salon just outside Clermont-Ferrand as well. She may well have gone to the Marquise de Sable salon too. We don't know. We know that she was criticized for the way she talked about grace and theology. I don't know whether she, you know, talked about midwifery there um, or not but I think there is this she is in this in this sociability and it's clear that the connection with Valant is what instigated the production of this manuscript now there's obviously a performative aspect to that because she's still weaving her way through these gender norms and so she has to say you know I've only done this because you asked me to and that's really common for female authors in this um, period what's super interesting is the way he curates it so he obviously read it he annotates it and he um kind of files it away and it is in a part of his collection where there is some order and it does seem to be mostly medical materials but he doesn't publish it in the way that it appears that they'd talked about and she says in the letter you know it's and this is really um again they're kind of these gendered conventions it's up to you what you do with it. Now you know, and I think you need to. You know, it needs polishing. It needs your kind of um, finesse. Did he present it at the Marquise de Sable salon? I don't know. I don't know whether there was any. Um, you know, he made any attempt to disseminate it, but he did. He did keep it. Um, and there's some very interesting work, um, like Vera Keller, Elizabeth Yale, amongst others, about thinking archivally and why people kept these collections and it seems to me that Vallon didn't author anything himself he didn't publish anything so his kind of legacy his um, you know the way he wanted to be remembered was for having kind of curated this huge collection of materials and he obviously thought that Baudrillard's treatise had a place in that okay.
0: but he, he then his reputation in the future would be augmented by having this book is in itself interesting you know and so that tells us that certainly she has at least with him some respect but beyond that you know the criticism of her conversations her comments on theology and her basically heretical beliefs i mean that in itself is a demonstration right that she is out talking and effectively enough to bother people.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
0: (laughs) And not necessarily about uh, midwifery, which you'd expect her to be talking about. I mean that's really fascinating, and I um, when we talk about you know the Republic of Letters, which they are really going to talk about non, in the 18th century, think, right? You know, and, and this is kind of the proto Republic of Letters, these little salons. I mean, is she a, she's not a salonniere, but is she you know a citizen of the Republic of Letters? Is a very interesting question, um, and and not necessarily what we
1: would have thought we were going to see there, right? No. Absolutely. Certainly not what I thought, um, not the kinds of questions I thought I would be asking myself when I first read the treatise. And then it was very much, this was about the medicine, it was about the, you know, the practicalities of childbirth and what does she know about difficult labours. I wasn't thinking about, you know, where does she fit in this, the broader context of of science and knowledge and medicine in the 17th century. And so I was astonished when I realised that, you know, these, yeah, she has... It looks like a much bigger role, even if it, you know, only bits of it are recorded than than the treatise itself would indicate.
0: And it, maybe she's not that big
1: a deal. Then it just means that there's a lot of more women around. Exactly, yeah. So that's the question, isn't it? And I'm very interested in these categories of kind of ordinary and extraordinary and what's exceptional or not. And I think really that, yes, there are things about it we could say that are extraordinary or exceptional, but that's when we read it in, you know, These assumptions that we've long held about the gendered norms and the gendered dynamics what it seems to me is really exceptional is that these sources survive and actually this she may be an example of you know lots of other midwives working in hospitals who perform similar roles but maybe they didn't have the same connections they didn't write their knowledge down and they didn't send their knowledge to somebody like Valent who was a hoarder basically um, and kept everything. So I think it does raise questions about, yeah, the kinds of the kinds of questions we should be asking even when we can't answer them all and, and what we should be looking for.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, let's think about the woman that you know that she knew who wrote who wrote a treatise as well and sent it to someone who wasn't a hoarder, or sent it to someone who had a fire. You know, how many of these are gone? Have we just how many of them are sitting and waiting for a graduate student to to stumble across them? Is that it's not the archives aren't endless, but. They're deep, they're, they're deep, and and they have lots of secrets. I mean, this is these are fascinating and really tantalizing ideas, you know, that you can rethink. So let's sit on the treatise for a second, though. Let's talk about this. What's um, what like? Were you, did you find something there that you weren't expecting? Did you read anything completely new, or is this kind of solidly within the realm of seventeenth-century medical knowledge?
1: Yes and no. So. In the way it's kind of laid out, um, that's kind of very standard. I'm going to talk to you about, you know, easy, straightforward births. I'm going to talk to you about difficult births. I'm going to talk to you about what midwives do. So I think a sort of quick superficial read, you could say, yes, this slots in with what we know about midwifery treaties. But then I came across and I started thinking a bit more about when she talks about surgical instruments, for instance. And that's really, really striking because – the other contemporary texts we have by both male and female authors are much more cautious about talking about how they use surgical instruments and when they use them. And they talk about how skillful they are with their hands instead in a, as Liam McTavish says, from a male point of view of kind of trying to say we're as good with our hands as the female midwives, you don't need to be scared. We're not going to come, um, you know, with these nasty instruments. And in terms of the female midwives, kind of skirting around should they or shouldn't they be using tools, metal tools rather than their hands. And Bourdois is completely different. And I think a lot of that has to do with the specific context of Clermont Ferrand, the fact that she's not working in Paris. Most of the other texts we have, their midwives working In Paris, they've got closer scrutiny from the surgical corporation and the medical faculty. But she is very frank and open about, I use them when I need to. Hands can do damage as well. We need to be careful with how we use our hands. Um, She even commissions a modification to a specific instrument so that she can rupture the amniotic sac when the cervix isn't fully dilated. And she borrows instruments from surgeons. So that really kind of, you know, throws out this idea that women are not using metal surgical tools in this period. Um, A, because they're legally prohibited and that it was kind of culturally taboo. And, and when I dug into the context in Clermont-Furray, I realized that the surgeons don't incorporate their until the 1690s so that's at the very end of her life Um, so it seems to me that that what we might read as a as a legal prohibition isn't really doesn't really hold true for that context Um, and when you read the regulations anyway there's this kind of slipperiness between you license to do what you need to do for midwife midwifery but you're not licensed to practice surgery. Well, what counts as surgery and what counts as midwifery and what do you need to use, you know, to be a a midwife? So she's not legally obliged to call a surgeon in a difficult birth in the way that midwives in Paris were. That's not to say that they always did, but the statutes indicated that they, they should. So she has this space, which I think is probably true of lots of other provincial places because lots of towns were late to incorporate, um, and it doesn't happen until the later 17th century. But she has this this space where she can use um, these tools. Although, incidentally, one of the examples, it seems to be, was when she was working in Paris and she borrows an instrument from a surgeon friend and he doesn't come and oversee. He just lets her use it and she, you know, performs what she needs to perform successfully. So that was really, really striking because we've always, um, or very much this kind of idea that, particularly from the 18th century with the invention of, and the widespread use of forceps, that female midwives were prohibited from using, but that that was part of this kind of replacement narrative of men taking over um, from women. And I think it's, it's so much more complex than that anyway. And this shows that in you know provincial mid to late seventeenth century France that's just clearly not the case
0: so it seems there are ways that being out in the provinces not being in Paris gives her so much more scope right she's she's able to achieve a rank and a power and and like maybe um, a professional success that she would not have achieved in Paris but how much does that contribute to uh, you know why why this wasn't published how much of being out in the provinces um kind of led to her obscurity in between you know after her like why this wasn't published that's it that's my question
1: yeah that's a really good question I mean I think it's yeah I think you're absolutely right it gives her the space but it also it's kind of limiting in the sense that, yeah, perhaps she'd been, if she'd been the head midwife at the Hotel Dieu in Paris, like Marguerite de la Marche who um, printed her text in 1677 with the support of the physicians and surgeons and the governors of the Hotel Dieu, that maybe that would be the case here. But I think it's also because of her her frankness and her openness she's quite openly critical of what she calls authors. I mean, she doesn't name them. That's quite commonplace to lots of the male surgeon midwives kind of obliquely attacked each other by just saying um, author as well. But it's likely that those in in Paris, I mean, they would have recognised themselves reading her text. So... Potentially, you know, if Alon did read it or show it to anybody in in Paris or maybe he recognised them himself and he thought, you know, this is this is not going to fly because it's too openly critical and she's too openly writing about doing something that isn't acceptable in Paris. So, yeah, it's it's I think it's it really is the case that that that's that kind of double edged sword. It's space to do these things, but then kind of limited the reach of those things.
0: Yeah, because I mean, one of my big questions is how, why she disappears, why, why she falls into obscurity, and why there is no no one between her and you, who's reading this this treatise, or at least we don't have any record of anyone between uh, Vallon and you reading this treatise. And so I thought, you know, the, the, there are these axes, and one of them I think would have to be, you know, center Paris or not Paris, Paris or the territories. Yeah. How much is it a woman question? How much is that just because she's a woman? I mean, other women are writing and publishing their treaties, yeah?
1: Yeah, they are, some. so that's the question. Why doesn't she do that herself? Why doesn't she get you know, her female patron, Gilbert Pascal, to help her? I mean, it, it could be timing. Um, she wrote the treaties just before Gilbert lost her husband really suddenly, and then she was kind of managing like, his debts um, and household issues. It, you know it could be as simple as and then she was separated by property so she's looking for somewhere else to live. It could just be kind of at that point in her life she wasn't in a position. Why she didn't come back to it? I don't know. I mean in a sense we don't know whether other you know were there conversations between her and valon that we don't that we don't know about but I think certainly yes, certainly the gender and then the you know kind of geographical control of, of knowledge, in the capital, I think, is still very, very strong. And the fact that, you know, there isn't, we don't know much about the afterlife of this text is also to do with the way that, um, you know, archives are kind of kept and catalogued. I mean, we know about it because somebody very carefully in the t- um, mid 20th century did actually go through. Valence's 15 portfolios and pick out some things and this is one thing um, that was picked out so it is it does kind of appear you don't have to search all the way through but you still have to look through know that Valence portfolios are there and look and look through them so there is a very late 19th century medical thesis from 1899 um, which was on Valence's medical practice which does reproduce some of Baudouin's treaties but it's not complete He leaves out the bits where she's criticising authors and where she's kind of talking about her own, you know, this is the way we should do this, not that way. And when she's being really quite firm and kind of self-assured about her knowledge, those bits are missing, Um, which, I mean, that's very definitely a a gendered thing. And his kind of commentary at the end is, well, you know, Valon thought this was worth keeping and thought that she, you know, was knowledgeable about midwifery. So it's included here, kind of thing.
0: Not because she wrote it, but because I no. thought it was worthwhile. Um, you mentioned the phrase "the uh, afterlives," right? Archival afterlives are a topic we're discussing quite a bit now. Yeah, um, and I, I love that idea. Can you exp- like? Can you tell her what does this mean when I say "after archival afterlives"? What does this mean to to you? with this document and for our study more broadly of our period?
1: Okay, so it's not actually my. Um term I quote that from a um an edited volume on archival afterlives by Vera um, Keller and others and I think it's a really great way of thinking of, of addressing this question of accessibility that you were talking about you know what do we know is there what do we see and what's kind of invisible and hidden and why is that and how do we get at the decisions that you know, the owners of these papers initially made about what to render visible and what to hide. So I think in some instances it can be about you know whose name is on them. Is the authorship collaborative, but there's only one name on it, usually a a male name. Um, and I think in terms of this treatise, it's really connected to that question of, well, why on earth did Vallon keep it but not publish it? And you know what's going on? really what's going on there Um, and why does he catalogue it in his kind of what we can tell of his organisation of his um, portfolios separately from the other two letters that she wrote to him and so I think it's trying to get at what's going on with her but through him and thinking about it's all these layers isn't it and they're gendered and they're economic and they're about social status and they're about the decisions that so many people make about what's worth keeping and what's not worth keeping and how do we keep it
0: and so many times right um how many how many pages did she write and then throw away uh, because it wasn't right. And then she gives, there's this copy that he annotates. There may have been other things that he tossed, right? But he keeps this. And then someone decided to keep his papers, but they're not cataloged really all that well. And there are just so many places all the way through our archival understanding, you know, cases that get dismissed, um, something that the 19th century archivists who went through to do the cataloging, Okay, well I'm not gonna destroy it, but I we don't want to talk about that anymore, right? And so uh, there's and there's a whole bunch about medicine and sexuality and gender issues that, like the nineteenth century deems inappropriate, and so they're they're clouded from us in the twenty-first. I mean it's it's just this multi-layer process of deciding what's worth knowing and who's worth listening to.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean she may have had a copy herself, but I couldn't find any trace of any of her papers her will is exists in large part i think because of the of this legacy this generous legacy to the hotel Dieu. and so there's a copy of it in the hotel Dieu registers the ones that survive and i managed to find the original notarial copy as well and some scattered other notarial um credit agreements but there's no you know there is there is no collection of her papers that survive so why you know why weren't they preserved maybe she corresponded with other people as well, maybe she kept the letters that Vallon wrote her, assuming that he did. But that didn't survive.
0: No, and she has a, she's an important woman. She has a long career. She yeah. has papers. Yes. Well, they And someone made, um, probably right away, but at least sometime in the intervening century, someone made the decision not to preserve them anymore. Because yeah. you can only keep so much stuff.
1: Exactly. And so I think the question is, how much of what we know about women's medical work is actually shaped by these archival accidents or decisions uh-huh. about what to keep and what not to keep? You know, you know, the assumptions that we've made about, you know, how few women were active at this level is maybe based on simply, you know, what was preserved and what was sure. dismissed. Mm
0: hmm. And the literacy and wealth and who's going to have power and what education looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, just layer upon layer. Um, so, you know, we, we, what we've just talked about is one of the macro level annoyances of being an early modern love historian, but, um, you know, we've got to just, I we want to, we've been here for a while. I want to wrap up a little bit, but just, to, I want to think, of before we go, I want you to tell me some of the things, some of the micro level annoyances of doing a translation, because, you know, if. Uh, if Hollywood, has, if you look at, like, Hollywood films of academics, they, like, sit down with a manuscript and begin to write flawlessly, write word for word, is, you know, um, which is precisely zero, has nothing in common with what actually happens when you're trying to translate. So can you tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about the process of trans of transcription, even, and translation?
1: Yeah. So that was a much longer process than <laughs> i anticipated <laughs> probably very naively um, i took so i took photographs mm-hmm. of the manuscript and i transcribed them from that but that took several goes because the spelling is odd and some of the words are easier to read than others and then i translated that which again took longer and there are you know very odd expressions there's no punctuation there's no paragraphing. No, remember,
0: um, remember, listeners. There's no grammar. No one has invented grammar. This doesn't exist yet, nor spelling. Like we yeah.
1: no uniform <laughs> French language no. uh, or way of, of writing. So, and there were lots of expression, lots of kind of um, idioms and idiomatic expressions that are not, you know, they're not in modern French dictionaries anymore so i had to do quite a bit of digging um, i used the dictionnaire d'autrefois the online digitization of early dictionaries to find those and then i had to kind of think about well how do i render that in a way that's understandable to a uh, somebody reading it in english but isn't losing you know the meaning in in french so there are there are quite a lot of footnotes where i kind of try and and deal with that, and obviously, of course, you do always lose something in the translation because no language maps um, perfectly onto another, but I wanted it to be readable to a kind of modern day reader.
0: And that fight of readable and, un- and legible to a modern person, but not completely dishonest and not doing violence to the original tone or t- of the text um, is its own thing. And then of course, you know, every translation, is uh, a, an addition you're you're making judgment about what you're going to do yeah it's tough it's really hard and i don't think that translators get enough credit so i just want to put this out on the record it's it's a really hard largely thankless process that takes approximately three to four times longer than you think it will
1: yes absolutely
0: absolutely <laughs> <laughs> and then um you know just reading a document and figuring out what it says is one thing but reading reading something of this size and preparing it like making it clean enough for publication is truly uh that's you're doing god's work right there thank you
1: (laughs) i know a lot more about um the rules about transcribing than i ever thought i would when i first embarked on this yeah i'm
0: sure yeah absolutely um all right. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed it. And I've taken so much of your time. Um, thank you so much for talking to me for this long. So I just have one more question, uh, which is uh, maybe maybe the most interesting, might be the hardest. What's next?
1: What are you working on now? So I'm working on um, quite a few things now. One is I'm writing an article with a good friend, Lisa Smith, who actually showed me the Boudoir manuscript in the first place. We're writing about an 18th century female healer who has a very different set of papers a different um set of archival accidents so we're writing about female um healing in an urban landscape and then i'm working on legal medicine for a book so that's i'm getting into the gruesome bits the autopsies and the medical reports again and then another book is about a murder case in 1767 the disappearance of Claudine Rouge, so that's going to be a microhistory about her and who she was, what we can know about her, and what happened. So, this thread of archival fragments and erasure and mm-hmm. invisibility kind of runs through a lot of the my current projects as well, but also gender and women and medicine and bodies.
0: Uh, yeah, more of the like, more of the same, in a very interesting way. Um, I cannot wait. I'm a murder junkie. I can't wait to read that book. Um, all right. Thank you again. Thanks so much. All right, listeners, we are talking about the Other Voice in Early Modern Europe uh, series, which, by the way, uh, go check out. Almost all of them are uh, fantastic. I haven't read one that I didn't enjoy. Um, and this is The Art of Childbirth, a bilingual critical edition of Marie Baudin's 17th century uh, epistolary treatise on childbirth, translated, edited, and transcribed by uh, uh, by... Dr. Kathy McClive, who we've just spoken to today.
1: Thank you so much.